Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Iran. My guest today is the one and only Dr. Tim Mackey, um, co-founder of the uber popular Bible Project. Um, I would think almost every single one of you listening probably knows what the Bible Project is. If not, just Google it and you can find out more about that amazing uh, free resource. Tim has a PhD in Hebrew Bible from the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, he is an expert when it comes to... Um, Reading the Old Testament, especially, or the Hebrew Bible, uh, on a literary level. So that's where we go for this podcast. We go deep, 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 deep into various texts of Scripture, looking at how um, the Garden of Eden narrative ends up sort of showing up at various places throughout the unfolding biblical story. And I, I could have kept going for hours with this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it if you like in-depth Bible studies. So please welcome back to the show for the, uh, I don't know what is like third or fourth time, the one and only Dr. Tim Mackey. Tim, thanks for, uh, for coming back on Theology General. I think this is at least number two, if not three, for you. But it's been a couple of years at least. This might be the first post-COVID uh, conversation we had. Yeah. Yeah, Preston. Um, that's totally right. It's been a number of years. And it's great, man. It's great. I, I Just for you to know, I'm like I value... Uh, this podcast and listen to it pretty broadly myself. I just, I love the variety, the intentional variety of conversations you're having about important things. So I just, I value it. L literally listened to a couple episodes with my wife on the way back from a road trip yesterday. So, oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that's high so praise, cheers. man. Thank I you. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was just back at a uh, Blackhawk Church uh, earlier this oh, earlier this year, yes. yeah, in January, and your name came up, and I always forget that you were on on staff there for a number of years. Yeah, yes, yep, that's where I landed for graduate school. Uh, that's what land, landed us in Madison, Wisconsin, and then that's the church we ended up going to. And it's funny, my wife ended up working there oh, wow. when we moved out there. And uh, becoming an important leader there. And I was just known as Jessica's husband for many years. <laughs> nice. Because I was mostly buried in the library for all those years. And uh, anyway, but eventually I did get involved and came on to pastoral staff at that church. Wonderful most people, community. Most people don't realize that University of Madison, Wisconsin is one of the top Old Testament slash ancient Near East programs in the country. Mm. Is that correct? Is it still up there? Uh, like it used to be, or oh, it's not. It's, cha it's changed. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the two lead professors, um, Michael Fox and oh, yeah. Cynthia Miller, um, uh, retired or moved on, and then the department got absorbed into classics. Oh. And so there is still a like ancient Mediterranean religions and history or something like that, huh. and and a Jewish studies department. But for that season, I think for kind of the eighties through the early two thousands. It was a cross list between Jewish studies uh, and the language department. And so it was just Hebrew of all periods yeah. um, and just uh, early Judaism and ancient Near Eastern uh, literature and history. It was awesome. I loved it. It was a really fun season. Well, I remember hearing about it, yeah, from a distance. It would always be referenced in like if somebody came from there, like, oh, this is like kind of like, kind of like, you know, you hear Harvard or Oxford or, you know, whatever, but it's just not... 
you wouldn't think of it. It, it, it you know, it seems off the beaten track a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's been this powerhouse mm-hmm. of Old Testament studies. So that, well, that's yeah. a shame. It's 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 not what it used to be. But yeah, yeah, you know, departments departments change, but um, it was. Uh, I, I think I, for me, it was the first non-religious, conservative religious environment uh, to engage in biblical studies, and I wanted to get outside after you know going to Bible college and seminary. I wanted to be in a broader more diverse context to study biblical literature. And that was definitely what I got. <laughs> it was so great. You're, you're, studying Ch- along, you're studying alongside and from professors who aren't religious or mm-hmm. are not, mm-hmm. definitely not Christian or for sure not yep. conservative evangelical, right? I mean, that's not, yep. that wasn't yeah. the environment. And that's right. In a broad array of Christian and Jewish students, graduate students and undergrad. It was wonderful. It was, you couldn't take anything for granted yeah. about your beliefs. Yeah. And not that you had, uh, you know, given apologetic every class. In fact, that was discouraged. But the point was just let's come together and read and discuss and learn from these texts on their own terms yeah. and in their original languages. And I loved it, man. It was such a fun season. That's exactly what drew me to study at Aberdeen in Scotland. Mm. Now, Aberdeen did have much more of a, at the time I was there, the religious religion department had a lot more committed Christians than, than your average, yeah. maybe secular university. Um, but it was a, for my, my, my desire was the same thing. I wanted to go to a non-confessional institution yeah. where you could go where the text leads and not have anybody looking over your shoulder. I'll never forget though. You'll appreciate this. I, I got hired on at, uh, Nottingham university just for a semester to fill in for, um, uh, Richard Bell's a new Testament prof. He was on sabbatical, I, I applied for a, you know, short six month stint and I got it and I'll never forget that. So that department was a lot more, um, I, I was probably the only person there who'd be considered evangelical on any level. My colleague was, uh, new Testament colleague was Maurice Casey. Who's a committed atheist, mm. uh, Jesus mm-hmm. specialist. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people don't realize that exists, but he, he knows the, the, not only yeah. the Greek, but the Aramaic behind the Greek better than I know the English of Jesus' words. I mean, he's a brilliant yeah. scholar. Um, other people in the department were, you know, if they were Christian, they were very much, very not evangelical. Um, but I'll never forget asking the head of the department, I'm like, would you ever hire like an, even, like, an evangelical like me, you know, full-time as a Bible professor? And he said, in all seriousness, he said, you know what? You know, I wouldn't mind that at all, as long as they would just stick to the text. <laughs> as long as they would just stick to the text. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, whoa. It was, it was, it was honestly a turning point in my. But he, you know, this perception that evangelicals are so agenda driven in their mindset, so politically driven, which might not be too far, far off. But it's like, no, we would love. It's just they just don't. We just want somebody who just sticks to the text of scripture. Yeah, yeah. So it's as if, if an, even, if, if mind, an he's, evangelical he's never met do that, like that, then I might hire him. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's totally right. Well, so that speaks to a broader issue that's interesting. Maybe overlaps with at least something I thought to talk about because uh, you asked me to talk about yes. whatever I'm thinking about. Um, but it is about how do we know that we're not just making all this up when we read the Bible? <laughs> like how do how do we actually get in touch with a tool set? excuse me, how do we gain a tool set that gets us in touch with actually hearing somebody's voice that's not our own when we read the Bible? And um, for me, that was the value of being in a really pluralistic, diverse context um, where all you could take for granted with each other is 
your you know language, your grammars, your your lexicons and dictionaries and things in ancient context. And it was really good for me just to sit in years in that setting because that is a value historically that at least the reformed Christian tradition is said to value. Yeah. Ba- add fontes back to the sources, you know, yeah, 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 <laughs> to hear yeah. from the prophets and apostles all over again. And so that's a part of the Protestant tradition that I love and value. It's a part of why I'm in that tradition. And so it is ironic, though, that that's not how non-religious huh. people think of yeah. Bible nerds who are themselves conservative Orthodox or whatever. But so, so there you go. Just so my audience knows, yeah, I, I, you know, as I often do, Tuesday afternoons, I send out a bunch of podcast invites, and I was like, oh, I gotta have Tim back on, and yeah. um, I, and I, I said, you know, I have no agenda. I, I don't even know what we're gonna talk about, but I would love whatever is stern in your heart and mind. Uh, let's just go for it. So you told me yeah. offline you had something, and I said, well, let's yeah, don't, yeah, don't yeah. tell me ahead of time. Let's just do this in real time. So can you yeah. tease that out a little bit? What what is this thing you've been uh, thinking and processing? Yeah. Did you want to talk? Well, about? I suppose the specific thing isn't uh, necessarily about interpretive method, but it's about how I've been trying best as I can for you know over twenty five years now of reading. Um, specifically the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew and in ancient context. And I have been learning so much over the last eh, seven-ish years from primarily Jewish and Israeli scholars who were immersed in the Bible in its ancient context and Second Temple Jewish context that has just um, deepened, sometimes inverted or shattered (laughs) my previous understandings. But usually that's just me being over exaggerative, but it's usually a, a deepening and a realizing like, whoa, I had no clue hmm. that this was like what's really going on. It's challenged me so many times to see my past self as assuming I already knew what the Bible was going to say or be about. <laughs> and then when you actually can get some tools to get in touch with what it is saying on its own terms, it's so surprising to me. And it's so much more beautiful than I already thought it was. So I have a specific set of examples that I could bring up that have become really important to me. But they raise this bigger issue of how do we gain some leverage or controls to make sure the Bible doesn't become an echo chamber. So that's kind of the meta issue. So maybe we could, you know, I could talk about the specific parts of the Bible that have been doing that to me. And then, but that's the meta issue. I think that'd be helpful. Let's let's start with some concrete examples and 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 go top or down up. I guess, yeah, yeah. So I I think the basic insight that for me is just like the fountain of life, pun intended, as you'll see in a minute, um, is that uh, the Garden of Eden narrative is both literarily it's it's the you know it's at the front of the biblical story, <laughs> uh, Genesis two and three. So you have the seven day creation narrative, and then you have the Garden of Eden narrative, which spans from Genesis two verse four to the end of chapter three, with the ex. So it's from the creation of the Garden of Eden in Genesis mm-hmm. two verse four to the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. Uh, that sequence right there, the seven day narrative, and then the Garden of Eden narrative is the equivalent, I'll use a couple analogies, like if you're listening to classic, uh, like Blue Note era American jazz, um, this would be like the first 30 to 45 seconds of like a, of like a ballad, 
you know, a jazz ballad by Miles Davis or something like that. And it's, you get the core melody, all the key notes and the note progression of just right there. You get a full cycle of it in the first, you always under the first 60 seconds of the song. And then what the rest of the song is, is just variations through cycling repetitions through the core melody. Mm. And so, you know, the, tr uh, the trumpet will take it this direction and then you'll cycle back around and then the piano will go through the cycle and you go that direction and then you'll cycle around and then the drum and the saxophone will do another progression. But that's essentially the, the structure of improv jazz is you take one core melody and then you just work it in as many directions as you can. And biblical literature is like that. Um, the sequence of the seven-day creation narrative plus the Garden of Eden narrative after that sets a, a core melody of words, ideas, Im and images and themes that just get explored on replay as you go throughout the Hebrew Bible. And with ever more sophistication uh, as the stories go on. And it, it, I think it helped to explains why when you get to the Gospels, which are second temple Jewish literature, the story of Jesus is simultaneously being told as the story of a new Adam, a new human, and as uh, the Messiah representative of Israel at the same time. Like those stories are not different from each other. They're overlaid on each other. But the reason the gospel authors tell the story that way is because that's already how you tell the story um, from its roots in the Hebrew Bible. So I, I could give a number of examples just because to show what I'm talking about. But um, essentially, if anyone listens to the Bible Project podcast, this is just kind of what yeah. we do all day. Uh, this, <laughs> unpacking this basic insight. Well, I'm already, I'm already thinking, I mean, you even called it the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. So here you have the Garden of Eden, and then the land of Israel is described as kind of a, a new, a new Eden, the temple. I, I almost said, obviously it's not obvious to maybe a lot of people, but you know, the temple yeah, is yeah. described with a lot of Edenic imagery. And so you have kind of a renewal of the garden and then the exile to Babylon is in some way seems to be echoing or linked to, or overlaid upon the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. If you, if you do these mm -hmm. things, you'll be, you know, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, you'll be, you'll be cursed to kind of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 29 vision. So you, yeah. And then the, even, even the verbiage you said, even all the way down to the language. So I'm off the top of my head, I don't have a Bible in front of me, but I'm thinking like seed, land, blessing, what else? Um, curse. What are some other kind of linguistic things that are? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that's excellent. So even what you're just naming is that the rough structure of the sequence of like from something really good to something really bad, inside to outside, from blessing to curse. Like those are really broad movements of mm -hmm. the story. But it's even more like okay. it's even more dialed in. For example, um, you know, uh, the the human. The story begins with a wilderness. This is the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 2, verse 4. So it begins with a wilderness, um, and there's no water, the narrator tells us. And because there's no water, there's no plants, there's no trees, there's no human. Um, and so the next thing you know is that um, water pops up, pops up out of the ground, and the, the water that pops up out of the ground is spelled with the first two letters of the word Adam, human. But the, the spring is called an ed, which is... Olive Dalit. 
and the word human is spelled Aleph Dalet Mem. Adam. So an Ed comes up out of the ground. Oh, and the word ground is Adama. It's adding right. a fourth letter. So the spring, human, and the word ground are all spelled with the growing sequence of the same letters. It's really cool. Um, so an Ed, spring, comes up to water the Adama, from which God creates an Adam. And so God brings life out of non-life um, through water, through this stream. And then uh, plants can grow, and God plants a garden, and then he puts the human in uh, the garden with all these abundant trees. Uh, and then two specific trees are highlighted, uh, the tree of knowing good and bad, and then the tree of life. So that tree of life is really interesting because God already breathed his mm-hmm. breath into the human so that they are alive. So that creates this interesting kind of puzzle in the story of like, okay, so the creature's already alive, but apparently there's a kind of life that comes in connection with this tree uh, that is some kind of next level life um, or an enduring kind of life. And later in the story, you're going to learn um, that that tree connects you to God's own eternal life, that it becomes a gift of God uh, f- for eternal life. But then there's a command about how to maintain access to the tree of God's own eternal life. And that is about this tree of knowing knowing good and bad. It's be- We're told it's desirable uh, to look at. All the trees are desirable to look at. And um, that the, it's really beautiful like all of the other trees. Now, the tree of knowing good and bad represents kind of a, a, a longstanding puzzle in the story because knowing good and bad is something really good in all the rest of the Bible. In fact, it's like really important that you develop a healthy sense of knowing good and bad. <laughs> um, like in the Proverbs, the Proverbs tells you straight up, that's what the point of the book of Proverbs is for, <laughs> is to teach you knowledge of good and bad. <laughs> it says it in the introduction, right? So it's kind of this puzzle, like why doesn't God Like why is that a, Why is that a bad thing to, yeah, yeah. This, this tree yeah. of... So that's the famous puzzle, right, of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is how this is a good example of how then it links up and it's been put alongside the seven-day creation story. In the seven-day creation story, what we're told seven times over is God saw something that he had made and it was good. God saw that it was good. So the seven-day story sets you up to see God as the ultimate provider and knower and definer of what is good and by implication of what is not good. Um, So what this tree represents then is uh, God knows what is good. Apparently, it feels like God is holding out on the human. Like, why wouldn't God want me to know good from bad? In fact, when the snake, you know, crawls in to the garden, that's exactly what the snake draws attention to. Um, It's like, no, you aren't going to die. It won't, you're right, the tree won't kill you. it, it's good for humans to know good from bad. In fact, it will make you like like God or like Elohim, which could technically mean like spiritual beings, uh, but that's a little rabbit hole. So but I think what's happening in the story, it's this wonderful moment where the first human set on the stage has been given all of these gifts, this gift of abundance, this gift of blessing, the gift of life. But there is one choice. There are one choice away from potentially ruining ruining it all. And it might feel like God is holding out because he's saying, 
if, if you're going to be my partners in ruling the world together, it seems like you're going to need to know good from bad. And so it might seem like God is holding out the thing that I need to do my life well. But ironically, in telling the human not to eat from the tree, God is initiating a process of actually helping them discern good from bad. But it's going to be by observing the command and instruction of God, not by uh, doing what I see with my eyes. And so it's very interesting in the story when um, the snake you know, uh, spins his tail, spins his web, um, the phrase used in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, which is, if you structure it out, it's the literary center of the Eden narrative. It's actually been placed at the center of the center mm. in the of paragraphs. Uh, it says, and the woman saw the tree that it was good. Mm. And that's exactly the same phrase in Hebrew. She saw that good that was repeated seven times of God in the seven-day creation story. So that's a good, and this is how the biblical authors do it. They'll put stories or scenes next to each other or um, structurally linked. And then they'll use an identical phrase or a similar sounding phrase so that you compare and contrast the things that are linked together. So now you have Eve, who's just told she can become God <laughs> if she takes from this tree. And then the narrator describes her doing um, exactly what God, we know God knows and sees and provides what is good because otherwise nothing would exist in the story. But now we have a human taking it upon themselves to see what is good in their own eyes. And so she sees that it's desirable, to, beautiful to look at, um, desirable to eat and desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took and she ate, she gave to her husband and he ate. So that core portrait right there um, about seeing, desiring, taking, a human doing what is good by their own wisdom um, becomes the sad, tragic pattern that sets in motion everything that comes with the fall. So it's very interesting. Here, here's, so here's like an example. Um, the word fall isn't used in the Eden narrative. And, you know, there will be lots of rebellious people who expressly break the command of God, willfully rebel, you know. Um, but the story of Eden is more like of uh, watching a moral infant get tricked and make a really stupid decision that they had no idea what the consequences would be. And they set in motion a destructive series of consequences that just get out of control. And, and that's the portrait of the Eden story. And the longer I've sat with that, and so that, that's the Eden story. Uh, we can talk about the way it gets echoed in a couple other creative examples. But for me, just that right there uh, is such a powerful portrait of the human condition. Maybe it's because I feel like I, I play that scenario out every day <laughs> of my life. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was different than how I was first introduced to like, what happened in the garden, you know, when I uh, first started following Jesus in my 20s. So maybe we can session that a little bit and then I can talk about some examples. Well, I have a few, I, a few questions and thoughts. First of all, real quickly, First uh, John is often referenced as unpacking that, the, the desires of the, what, what is it, First John 2, the, the desires of the flesh, the... Yeah, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Is, is that drawing on exactly what you're saying? Is it kind of teasing out those elements? Or I've often seen those um, two linked. Yeah. 
yes, I think with the, a couple of other little layers, little seasoning okay. layers okay. that he's working with. But for sure, the idea of desire uh-huh. and this this voice, this voice of influence that you think will lead you to life, but actually is leading you to your own ruin. That's for sure John's way of echoing that. Yep. I, I, I've also seen people reference kind of, well, I guess Adam and Eve, but specifically Eve's interaction with the snake and her falling for his deception and ended up, you know, eating of the fruit um, as kind of like a model for like human sin in general. And I, I've often wondered, it's like, well, is that, is, is that too neat? Is that too, like, is that really intended to be this model? But if mm. what you're saying is this is really getting this kind of cycle going, that's going to see that's going to reverberate throughout Scripture, then the answer is yes. It, it's not just a, a a convenient kind of example to go to. It's actually looking at the very beginning of this human project that mm-hmm. went south and why it continues to go south and in need of God's redeeming grace. Yeah. So, um, so it really all that to, all I'm saying is like it actually is a good example to look at kind of the, the inner workings of human. Uh, sin and, and deception and 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 mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, yeah, that that that's right. a proper way to read the the Eden narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it, it's worth pointing out the name of the characters Adam and Eve or Adam and Chava <clears throat> mean human and living one. Eve means living one. <laughs> so, so the name of the characters when you put them together are living human. Adam Chai is mm-hmm. often the phrase. Yeah. yeah. So. Clearly, they are individual characters within the story, but their names and then how the cycles play out to follow um, make it clear, at least to me, that they are they're also meta characters. Every single character to follow is a living human in the story and then in history. And so I should look to compare my own struggles and right limits and uh, insufficient attempts to define good and bad as somehow in comparison to that of living human in the beginning. Do you find, Tim, do you find um, questions around historicity and science to be wrongheaded or uninteresting to you when we look at Genesis, the first few chapters? I mean, whether it's one to three or one to 11, because like, you know, when you said like we, you know, these characters are almost designed to be kind of representative somebody with like a different question of mine could say, Oh wait, no, no, no. But they're literal figures. They're not just representatives. And and it's almost like, well, maybe yes, sure. But that's not maybe the literary, that's not how we're supposed to, that's those aren't the questions, the main questions we should be bringing to the text is kind of where I go. I'm like, okay, let's set aside some of those scientific questions. I'm not saying they're irrelevant. I'm just saying like, let's just at least appreciate the main theological point that is embedded in the very literary kind of layout of the text. Let's just linger there for a little bit before we kind of race to mm-hmm. ask scientific questions. That, that's what I, that's, that's kind of how I navigate that. How do you navigate those yeah. historical yeah, slash scientific I, questions? Yeah, they're very important questions because what we're asking is how does the narrative world portrayed in these, in this case, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew texts, how does that portrait of the world correspond to my portrait of the world as a modern Westerner, and then these corporate portraits of the world that our cultures construct through historical method or scientific discovery and so on. That's such an important question, right? How does that narrative world relate to or reference what we might call the real world 
that we've constructed through historical science and so on. So that's a very good question, but it's a different question than asking the the meta question that I you know was trying kind of queuing to was what happens when I just sit down and leave my questions at the door and try to see what this author um, or how the text has been shaped by someone in the shape we have it now um, to take me on a journey that actually wants to communicate something about the nature of God, the nature of humans, the nature of the world as we know it. And in that sense, it's like, uh, who was the famous playwright that uh, was George Bernard Shaw? Um, to, to engage theater, you have to... Uh, engage in the practice of the willing suspension of disbelief, <laughs> right? You have to just enter into the story and willingly suspend any suspicions. I'm like, no, that didn't happen that way. Like, no way, that would never take place. And you're right, because and you when you watch Star Wars, for example, you're like, none of this would ever happen. <laughs> but you enter into the world and you just sit in it. And you sit in that as an experience designed to do something to me. And I guess that's uh, what I find is the longer I've done that and the longer I invite students and in learning in classes to do that, it just changes the questions that you ask. And it doesn't make the historical reference or science questions unimportant. It just puts them in a different category. Okay. It's a different type, different type yeah. of task. So um, I guess uh, there are plenty of listeners who would be like, oh, Tim's fully trying to dodge the question. <laughs> Uh, and maybe I'm just saying I'm separating it out. It's a separate conversation from sitting down with this ancient author and trying to understand what what they want to communicate to me. I agree. Those those questions can, they can be important. I just I, I'm always nervous about forcing an ancient text to answer a question that we are asking, but that it's not designed to to answer, or even as you know, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, the, the kind of chronological snobbery, or maybe not so much snobbery. Maybe it's just like, it, it, maybe it could be arrogant. <laughs> the arrogance, let's just go with that for the sake of being raw. You know, the, the arrogance of thinking that our questions are the most important because we have them, you know, as modern yeah, Western right. American, you know. Yeah. Ra- yeah. Ra- yeah. And, and to almost be frustrated if an ancient text doesn't answer the questions we have in the way we want it to be answered. Um, again, I... I, I that's kind of where my mind goes. I don't want to discount the importance of those scientific or historical questions. Um, and it really, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I do think that more than like the age of the earth to me is, is, isn't super interesting. I, I do think that the historicity of Adam and Eve and correlating that with our understanding of the science, of science or scientific knowledge of, of human origins, that one's a, a little more interesting because that does play a, a a theologically significant role, you know, in, in, right. in scripture. Right. Actually, so that's a wonderful example because um, in the seven-day narrative, the number seven plays a key role in the structuring mm-hmm. of the story, seven days. Also, the number of times God speaks is 10, 10 times, and, mm-hmm. and 10 acts of speech is going to become a really important literary principle uh, as you go on into the rest of the Hebrew Bible, most famously in the Ten Commandments, but a, a bunch of other times. And in fact, the biblical authors will often tell later stories highlighting the number seven and the number 10 as a way to signal restarting the melody. Interesting. Um, so in other words, what the biblical authors saw in those numbers seven and 10 is really different than maybe what modern people 
tend to debate about <laughs> those numbers. And I just want to show you an example, because once you just see it, it's just it's so cool how this works. And this will be all all the pieces coming together in case this is sounding like a semi-incoherent uh, conversation so far to any of your listeners. I'm having a good time. I, I hope you are. <laughs> okay. So let's just go. I'm just going to plop us down in a section later in Genesis, chapter 15, for example. So here's a story. Um, God has promised this guy, uh, uh, Abram, his name is still Abram, and uh, God's promised that he's going to have a really big family, a great nation that w through whom God's going to bless all of the nations. So on. That happened back in chapter 12. So the number one question on Abram's mind as he walks into Genesis 15 is like, hey, God, you know, it was a couple decades since we talked last, and I have no kids. Um, and I'm pretty old. And so is my wife, right? So uh, what uh, Abram begins the conversation saying, oh, verse two, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the inheritor of my house is a guy named Eliezer of Damascus? Now, here's what's really interesting. Um, that word childless um, doesn't actually mean childless. What it means is stripped naked. Oh, wow. So I'm I'm like one who is naked. And the only guy, it's Ariri, uh, which means to be bare or naked, exposed. So I'm naked. <laughs> and uh, the only one I have as the son of my house is this guy named Eliezer, which is a compound name in Hebrew. Eli meaning my God, like Jesus on the cross, Eli, Eli. Um, and then Ezer is the Hebrew word for um, helping ally or supporting ally it's what the woman is called in genesis yeah. too yeah, Azer, yeah. so i'm naked and the only azer i have is this guy named my god is my azer <laughs> so these these are all of a sudden we're using eden words here hmm. and you might not buy it but just let the case just let the case build here so we have a guy who says he's naked and he's not able to do the thing that god um has promised that he will become, which is a great nation. It sounds a lot like it is not good for the human to be alone. So I will make an ezer, right? A supporting, right? Or that delivering ally for him. I think that's what we're echoing. Abram said, well, you haven't given me any seed, yeah? any offspring. And the one born of my house is currently my heir. Uh, the word of the Lord came to him saying, no, no, no. I'm, uh, my paraphrase, I'm sure Eliezer's a very nice man but he will not become your heir. Uh, rather, one that will come out of your own body, that one will inherit you. So what God takes him you know, famously out to look up at the, at the heavens and count the stars. You're like, oh yeah, I, I learned about those in, in, on day four of Genesis one. Look up at the stars. In fact, that's the last time the stars were mentioned is on day four huh. of creation. Um, count the stars if you can. That's what your seed will be like. And so uh, Abram trusts. He trusts God. So we have the sequence of God promising to provide seed uh, for Abram, even when he seems to be naked and having no azer. Um, it's important that the word azer and zerah, seed, the helper supporting ally and seed are the same letters just inverted so i have no azer i have no 
I have no seed or descendants, and the only guy I have is this guy named Eliezer. And God says, no, 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 he's a nice guy, but I'm going to give you Zerah. And it's just the same letters. Hmm. And those and those words, seed and Zerah, are key words in the Eden narrative because there is no future of seed, lineage, from the lone human. But when God splits the human into um, one and then the supporting ally, then you get the future mm -hmm. of this era. Mm -hmm. So essentially, this is, um, and it's a nighttime scene. This whole thing's happening at night. So this, this gets even better. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward. So in verse nine, okay, so then uh, verse seven, God says, you know, I'm, a, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, I'm going to give you this land to possess it. And Abram says, no, how do I know that I'm going to possess it? And so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old lamb, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he's supposed to be like a little Adam collecting the animals mm. here. Yeah. So he's, it's, he, it's a little, little Eden scene. Except this time he doesn't live in harmony with them. He severs them in half, which is a little, little brutal. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. That's a fascinating little rabbit hole. But then check this out. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. When's the last time that a deep sleep has fallen upon a character in the Bible? The creation of Eve from his side. The, the same exact word, tardema. In fact, it's... A very rare word, tardema, um, and the Eden narrative and this narrative right here are two of the key narratives where it occurs. So we have a guy who's naked, who can't reproduce, and God calls a causes a deep sleep to fall upon him, and he's going to make a promise, right about what's going to come from his loins. I mean, we're just you see, we're mm. trading in Garden of Eden imagery here. Hmm. Um, so this scene is being set on analogy to God's provision of a future and a partner and a future family for Adam and Eve. So, so, so it's just a good example. And we have these random, all these random stuff about go collect these animals and weird vocabulary. But in doing so, the narrator is trying to set this whole scene on comparison to Adam and Eve. Now, I want to show a couple other things in the following chapter, but this is how they do it. And so this is a good example of why when we look at specific words or images and we ask about first from our perspective of historical reference or like um, scientific questions mm -hmm. based on words, specific words in the Bible. And I think for me, the imagination kind of conversion was the specific words that biblical authors choose are usually driven by another communication agenda. And often in a case like this, the words they're using are determined by this desire to set Abram in his crisis of need on analogy to Adam in his crisis of need in the Garden of Eden. And that's why the story is told the way that it, that it is. Hey friends, Preston here. I just received the coolest message from a Theology in the Raw listener, and I wanted to share it with you. Take a listen to this. I'm Ashlyn, and I'm a Theology in the Raw listener. I was listening to a podcast and heard Preston talk a little bit about 
when you're in ministry and you're teaching scripture, the importance of biblical languages. And I felt really compelled by that. I've always been interested in biblical languages. And I tell my students all the time, like context is key. And so much of that lies within the biblical languages. And I was praying, I was like, okay, Lord, I wanna learn biblical languages for an affordable price in an environment that's conducive to my stage of life, where I'm at and what I need. And I kid you not, the next podcast I clicked on was advertising Kairos. And it was just a perfect opportunity, checked all of my boxes of not homework heavy, very practical, based on learning, not on passing tests, very much the way that I learn. And there was an opportunity to take a class on a Friday morning in my own home online. And it's just been so practical and so effective and so helpful. Uh, And it's been really cool just how fast you begin to pick up on it because it is so practical. So if you have been wondering if you should learn the biblical languages, if that's something that you would benefit from, the answer is yes. You will always benefit from gathering more context into the scriptures that shape the entirety of our life and our belief system. And it's not as complicated as I think we can make it out to be or as daunting as we make it out to be. Uh, the way that the teachers teach and the way that the class is oriented, the way that the homework is, is it's very practical, it's very digestible, and it's little by little. It's it's fun, you know, whenever you actually get to see progress so soon, the way that it's wired is you're not waiting months upon months upon months to grasp a language because this isn't something that you're learning to speak or write necessarily. You're reading and understanding and recognizing it's a lot more practical than it may come across and it's definitely worth it. You should definitely check it out. It's been a really great decision for me. It's so awesome when we get to bring to you the Theology in the Raw family resources that actually make a big impact in your life. And Kairos Classroom has quickly become one of those resources that I hope you'll check out by visiting www.kairosclassroom.com. And don't forget to use our special code TITR. That's kairosclassroom.com with the code TITR. First of all, just so I, I'm totally into this way of reading scripture. I, I, um, I used to teach Old Testament survey. I don't know if you know this. I, I even though I'm a New Testament yeah, guy, I do I, remember that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for several years, uh, yeah, a long time actually. And uh, yeah, and I would often point out some of these things. Um, the Book of Judges is filled with these literary allusions that typically go back to the account of the patriarchs. Um, little little details where I'm like, whoa, did, are they doing this intentionally? Because this seems to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. E- even even describing the the horrific incident that the the rape of the concubines women in Judges nineteen is is so clearly mapped on the Sodom and Gomorrah story that that's not really disputed. But it's interesting that you know the, the whole theme of Judges is the canonization of Israel. Is I think Daniel Block coined that phrase where you know if you if you don't drive them out you become like them and by the end the judges are becoming like them and so you have this incident where you know. Um, you know, you guys think Sodom and Gomorrah is bad. Well, you guys are doing stuff that's actually worse than what Sodom and Gomorrah mm-hmm, did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, th- mm-hmm. just by example. But he- here's here's where my skeptical mind goes, which is about forty eight percent of the time. Yeah, <laughs> my, yeah, my yeah. brain is no, just shouting I like I know, I know where you're going. It's great. <laughs> the little Perfect. well, no, well, I, I, it sound if I was a skeptic, I would say, you know what, Tim, ah, what you're saying makes sense which shows that this is clearly a literary work and not a historical work. You probably didn't know oh, I was going to go. Like, oh, like, I didn't well, know you were is, going there. This, okay. this is a crafty literary thing, but I mean, 
there's so much literary stuff going on here that are you are you trying to tell me that these things just happen to happen this way as well in history that everything maps out like is it that orchestrated so intently um that that's that's my one skeptical question my other skeptical question is and this might be my own naivete being a modern reading an ancient text is were the ancient writers few of whom even existed <laughs> they can actually write were they that good on a literary because this is really sophisticated literary stuff when you start really un- unpacking some of this stuff like it, are the biblical authors slash editors who put this thing together uh is this typical in ancient literature to to be this careful and 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 creative all the way down to numbering this many you know, as you said, there's number seven and 10 in Genesis one. Like, do we see this in other ancient texts or is it really unique to the scriptures? Sorry, these two questions might have thrown you off. I don't yeah, think this yeah. is. Yeah, no, they're great. They're great. <laughs> they're great. Uh, I'll go the second one first. Okay. The second one I'll address first and just answer emphatically, yes. Okay. Um, and what actually is really interesting is, I guess it's all relative by comparison, but the fields of Egyptology and Assyriology are undergoing huge renewal, hmm. uh, rebirths right now, um, uh, both in North American and European scholarship. Um, even some new some new texts. There's been some uh, recent new Egyptian papyri found, hmm. um, really ancient. But but a lot of this work is truly trying to understand the native mindset of scribal schools and traditions. Of, of the ancient world, especially Mesopotamia, that is Assyria and Babylon, and then in Egypt. And um, in, in these fields, the degree of, of sophistication, of training, of high literary skill and literary subcultures, it's off the charts, man. Really? And what's funny is that there has not been a parallel analog revitalization in biblical studies. And especially in critical biblical studies, um, the kind of the default is this is ancient kind of more primitive folk literature, oral traditions that it got, you know, crystallized into literary remnants. And in critical biblical scholarship, it's sort of like, you know, they they were doing their best. (laughs) Uh, So there's almost a default against uh, uh, an argument for literary sophistication. And I I think all all I can say is I'm very interested and excited about the day when biblical studies catches up to the rest of ancient ancient Near Eastern studies. <laughs> well, I, so I thought I thought that in in the late so the, yeah, this is going to be I'm going going back 15 years now. I thought in the late 70s, early 80s ish with Brevard Childs and others that that wasn't there kind of this pushback against all this higher critical stuff and more of a move towards more literary canonical readings of scripture and didn't. Did that not take root to the extent that we wanted it to? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, not not in, not. A, I mean, if we're just taking biblical studies as the way discussions go in the guild, so to speak, you know, yeah. if you just if you track with Society of Biblical Literature's annual meeting trends, um, uh, the literary studies approach that was really po- uh, popularized by Robert Alter in a good oh, right. way, like yeah. he was, he's amazing. Um, and Brevard Childs made his own contribution to that. On the whole, that uh, has been dismissed in the field as imposing modern standards of literary sophistication onto these ancient texts. And the more echo chamber than reality is the claim. 
the, however, there is a always there's always been a minority report going on there, and that minority report has mainly been by an explosion of scholarship by Israeli and Jewish scholars mm. who are just like, no, no way, dude, this this stuff is next level. Um, so I'm thinking here of the work of somebody like Joshua Berman, of Moshe Garciel, Michael Avios, uh, Seth Postel. Actually, Seth Postel, uh, who's a Christian, um, a Messianic Jew, has uh, written this excellent work called... Um, Genesis 3, this is the subtitle, Genesis 3, 1 through 3, as the introduction to the Torah and the Tanakh. Um, I can't believe the title slipping me right now. Oh, Adam as Israel is the name of the book. Oh, interesting. Um, so he's, uh, so he, uh, he and I are thinking along very similar lines. And, um, but it's, what I find is that it's mostly Israeli or Jewish scholars who have grown up reading the Bible in, in their own language, in Hebrew, from childhood. Hmm. And there's a degree of deep familiarity so that the way, like I know the Star Wars canon, for example, <laughs> or my kids is like the, the familiarity they have from childhood and, but they don't view the Bible as children's literature, but they're able to just hold so much in their head at once uh, that they can see almost like waves through the text of repetition of vocabulary and themes and ideas in a way that if we just plop into Genesis 15, like we just did, it almost seems like I'm just kind of cherry picking and showing you this and that. But if we could take a year and crawl through Genesis 4 and how it picks up Genesis 1 through 3, and then Genesis 5 and how it does this with Genesis 1 through 4, and then Genesis 6, and, the, and so the cycle just keeps going. So by the time you're to Genesis 15, it's already, like what I just showed you is already like the top 10 hits. Mm of what's already been on the vocabulary recycle in Genesis 1 through 14, for example. And what's remarkable is just, is just how it keeps, uh, it keeps building on throughout. And so maybe just like to show why this matters to me also, I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, and so uh, I have this conviction based on what he said is that all these texts are somehow fulfilled and carried forward in his own life and announcement of the kingdom of God his death, his resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit. And so um, the story of like his, his testing in the wilderness, for example, and the way that Eden images get inverted or recycled just in that story alone, the Jesus 3 wilderness test, is tr truly remarkable. Um, Can you go there? In, Can you go there? Can you tease that out, sir? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to go with Matthew's account just because I've been working on it recently. But Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the opposite of a garden. Actually, it's what the garden, what the what the land of the garden was before God provided the spring. Yeah, it was wilderness. Um, and it's the Spirit, which the Spirit is the agent of life in the Eden narrative. And so, but now it seems like the Messiah is being led by the spirit into a region of non-life. It's very counterintuitive, like the anti-garden. And he's tested there. Um, in Genesis, the word test will become an important signal to uh, mark a moment when somebody, a later character is standing, so to speak, at their own tree of knowing good and bad with a choice. Um, that's, that uh, word gets introduced in Genesis 22 as an echo of the Eden test of Adam and Eve. Uh, to be tested by uh, the, the Diabolos, 
is the Greek word, the, the slanderer. Uh, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he became hungry. So we're, notice the inversion of Eden. Instead of eat from every tree, now he's eating from nothing. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's the opposite of a garden, and it's the opposite of a feast, like an Eden. So we're, we're in like anti-Eden land. <laughs> That's the, the inversion that we're doing here. Um, the tester came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that the stones become bread. So now this is a food test. You're like, of course it's a food test. <laughs> Somehow food is now going to become this test of loyalty, of trust in his father. And you're like, what else was the tree about except a trust that somehow God will teach me what I need to know about good and bad, even though this tree could shortcut it for me, right? We're imagining what Adam and Eve might think. But I'm going to trust that God will teach me what I need to know in his own time. And so, in, in very similarly, the tester comes, well, listen, man, if you are the son of God, clearly like food should not be a problem for you. Just say a command. In the Eden, God gave a command about the tree with food. Now here, the son of God refuses to command the stones to become food. And then um, verse four, Jesus' answer, he quotes Deuteronomy and says, human, that is Adam, it's the Hebrew word Adam in the Deuteronomy quote, <laughs> Adam will not live, have life by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So apparently God's command about the tree was actually the way to life, not taking and eating of the food of the tree itself. And so here Jesus inverts that by saying the life comes from the word of God, not by providing food for oneself. So just even just that right there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah, just see yeah. it, it's deep. Like you really have to think about it, but we're mm -hmm. actually thinking through the nature of what was happening at the tree in mm -hmm. Eden. Yeah. But the locations have all been turned in their opposites, the garden mm. into a wilderness, right? The, um, the abundant food into a lack of food. Um, the second test is about Jesus being taken up to Jerusalem and to the very top of the temple. And here, um, the narrator is using... Eden-associated ideas connected to the temple, specifically from uh, the Psalm scroll, the book of Psalms, where the New Jerusalem temple is depicted as a new Eden. And that's the vocabulary that, uh, that Matthew's drawing on here. And then here, uh, it's a, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. And then, right, the, the tester uh, quotes from a poem that we call Psalm 91. So, uh, it's about asking the Son of God to force God's hand of protection. If God was really committed to you, he'll surely rescue you in your moment of need. That's right, like the test. Um, so it's this idea that uh, if the Son of God is truly set up as the beloved of God, he won't let anything bad happen to you. Yeah, he would never... He would never allow you to face anything that's difficult. He'll rescue you. And so there's, some, uh, there's something similar here about what the, I think the angle the snake is working, that surely if you know, you're know you God's partner here, he wouldn't hold out a tree on you. 
He will give you what you need. In fact, he's already given. Just take it, for goodness sakes. So something going on there. Um, then the third test is about being taken up to a high mountain, which Eden, um, Eden is depicted as a high place because it has a river that flows out. All the rivers of the earth come from Eden. Um, Ezekiel straight up calls Eden the mountain of I was just thinking notice, Ezekiel 28 was the, yeah, the yes. correlates Eden with the mountain, which, which makes sense in the ancient mindset of the place where you meet with the gods is a high mountain. Yep. Yep. And then he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, uh, and their glory or their splendor. And the tempter says, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Um, so here we're working the angle of Adam and Eve's commission from the seven day creation narrative, which is to. Uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, and rule it. Have dominion and rulership over it. So it's all a question of how the human will gain divine authority over heaven and earth. Um, and in the Eden story, it's actually by not taking it by your own wisdom, but by allowing God to give it to you in your own time. And so similarly here, uh, Jesus is promised like cosmic authority over all the nations. And there's apparently two ways to get it. There's a satanic way, so to speak. Uh, and then there's the way of wisdom, which is to be patient and wait for God to give it to you. And what Jesus says is, Hubage, uh, Satana, get, get behind me, Satan, or go away, Satan. And he, and he passes the test. So dude, this is amazing. On the other side of Matthew, st structurally, the way Matthew works on the other structural matching end in the passion narrative is um, the Garden of Gethsemane, which Jesus calls a test. He calls it his great test. And there he's actually in a garden um, and he resists the temptation um, to use violence as the means by which to bring the kingdom of God. And Peter gets out the sword, right? And tries to use the sword. And the one other time that Peter tried to prevent Jesus from thinking he had to die was later in the Gospel of Matthew. And what Jesus says to Peter is exactly what he says to the tempter here, which is, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan, right? So I think what Matthew has done is he's taken the Eden test and he split it in two and put it as a frame at the beginning of Jesus' mission before announcing the kingdom of God and then at the end. And you have the wilderness test and the garden test. And there's all these hyperlinks, kind of links in between them and then to stuff in between. Hmm. But that's part of how Matthew is portraying Jesus as like the, the one who succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. Hmm. Uh, and and the, the language of the tests are precisely the same uh, type of way. So I'm not alone here. Um, Brandon Crow has a great book on uh, Adam imagery in the hmm. Gospels. I think it's called The Last Adam. Hmm. Um, and he's an example of somebody who's really picking up on how the gospel authors do this. But there you go. Uh, we could yeah. obviously do, we could talk for a long time. You've but given us a lot. So what, like when I've, when I've read, especially Matthew, The Temptation, or even the Sermon on the Mount, I see a lot of like new Israel kind of themes. And that's, that's typically when people look for um, Old Testament themes kind of interwoven throughout. Jesus' ministry, oftentimes they camp out on the new Israel, but that's not an either or, right? Because even Israel is a recapitulation of, you know, 
exactly. take taking on yeah. the mantle where Adam left off and messed up, and then Noah took it, he screwed up, and then Israel, you know, Abraham, and it just kind of keeps going on and on and on, right? So it's not an either or, it's a both and, right? Is that how you would? Yeah, yeah, that's right. In other words, Israel entering in the land, the seed of Abraham entering yeah. into the land, is depicted through these links and comparisons on analogy to Adam and Eve in the in the garden. And Jesus is set on analogy to them both. Okay. So, yeah. So that in bringing Israel's story to an inverted success instead of mm -hmm. failure, he is simultaneously bringing humanity's story right. to its uh, to its success instead right. of the, the failure that happened. So it's just, it's a remarkable way, just to maybe back up and conclude, it's a remarkable way that the biblical authors, they were part of a literary tradition of how to tell their family history. Well, clearly I think there was literary creativity involved. This echoes back to a point that you raised. It doesn't mean they're making it up wholesale, I don't think. Um, just in, in the same way that, you know, my wife and I have retold now for 23 years the story of how we met and, and dated and got engaged and got married. And if we're at somebody's house or dinner for the first time and they ask us to tell the story, like the way we tell it now is pretty tight. Yeah. And we've got like a five minute version, you know, and you've got the half hour version and it's become stylized mm -hmm. yeah, over the years. Sure. And we've actually, the way we tell it now is been impacted by the 20 intervening years and experiences that we've had that connect back where we can see the threads, you know? And so it very much doesn't mean that we're making it up. The fact that we tell a stylized version, just the opposite. I was there, <laughs> but the fact is, because we've meditated on the meaning of the story in light of everything that's happened, we tell it in a much more tight, stylized, you could even say creative way, where we'll turn up the volume on certain details, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? We'll take elements of one day night and put it with another, because we know that they are actually connected in terms of their meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think some process, much more sophisticated, but something like that is at work in biblical literature that this is a family history and what they're passing on to us is not just what happened, but the meaning of what happened. Hmm. And they want us to see the meaning of what happened through um, the patterns and links that we have all the parts together. That's a, a kind of, I hope a simple way of saying it. I'm going to ask you a practical question to cl close us out. Um, but I do, you mentioned Abraham shoot Abram shooing away the birds. And you said, that's a rabbit hole. You have thoughts on that. And I was like, Oh, please dude. I've, of, I've often wondered like, why? I mean, okay. Yeah. So he did that, but like, why include that in the story? Like what's, what's, what's going on there? Can, do you have any brief thoughts on that? <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting. So it's the word, um, uh, Nashav here. I'm just, uh, just recalling real quick here. It's the word Nashav. It's not a very, common word, uh, but it is connected um, with the blowing of wind. Literally, it means to blow out um, or exhale. So we're imagining him going like, <laughs> like blowing the birds away like that. Um, but I, th I think it's another Eden echo because the exhaling of God's breath hmm. um, that ends up bringing life into the land. Whereas in this case, I think, Abraham's exhalation of breath is what protects the covenant scene as a place where God's going to make a pact um, with him. So that, okay. that's where I'm at currently. 
I'm actually not fully compelled by that interpretation. And I think there's probably some other things. What's interesting is how that line was taken within Second Temple literature. For example, there's a Second Temple work called Jubilees um, that has a fascinating um, interpretation that takes the birds as analogy um, to the, the nations that want to oppress Israel and depict Abram as like the rescuer of Israel's future. And um, mm. because there's actually all of these links in this story that get picked up in the, the Gideon story in Judges, mm. <laughs> that portray Gideon as a new Abraham um, in really interesting ways. And whoever wrote Jubilees saw the blowing of Abraham as, as is this image that gets developed in the Gideon story as Gideon's rescue from the Midianites anyway. Okay, so two, I guess now I have two questions, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Um, so once you get excited about seeing these connections, yeah. it could run the, the risk of reading too much into the text. And I hear, I hear you, has, maybe that's where your hesitation comes in with Genesis 15 with the birds of prey and, and yeah. stuff. Is, is that, have you ever gone back and said, oh, you know what, I think I wanted to see more here than was there? Or how do you protect against that? That's my first question, and I'll, yeah. I got another one. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. I mean, I, uh, yes, just because I think because of my training, I'm all, you know, I was taught to question yourself and then look for details in the text to make the strongest possible case for what your conclusions are. So I, that's good. I, that's, I think that's just good, healthy reading strategy. Um, but I consistently have my imagination expanded by connections that I think are really compelling that I wouldn't have seen otherwise if I didn't know to look for them. So I don't know. I'm more come to the conviction that the default of the biblical authors is towards imaginative connection making. But the point isn't just imaginative. The point is they want you to meditate on how the, the details of Abram's story are like and unlike Adam and Eve's story so that you understand both better so that you understand your own life better because you begin to see the details of your own life in light of these characters' experiences with, with God. So they're trying to expand our imaginations, not close us down. Um, but at the same time, I think it's healthy to... So I have, I, I have a columns always in my notes of growing observations. And it'll, it'll, there's, a call, there's a point at which it goes from maybe to, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. <laughs> And it's usually just the number and the number of connections yeah. uh, th that is how the biblical authors signal to you that there's a connection going on. You might have just answered my second question. My second question, I'll just ask it again. And if you want to, you know, expand on what you just said, is the kind of so what? Like I could hear maybe some people saying, "Well, okay, here's a couple of Bible nerds kind of geeking out over these connections." Yeah, sure. But even yeah. if you were correct that the ancient authors were mapping these events upon events on each other and using language to kind of signal the previous stories. And like, so what's the, what's the payoff? Like, what's the, is there, is there a practical payoff to under to seeing the Bible in this kind of 3d lens? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think, um, I think the payoff is that the set of reading skills that this literature encourages is of seeing patterns repeat through the generations of how God relates to each of these characters throughout the generations and of how people tend to repeat the behavior of their ancestors, <laughs> but never identically, always okay. with a twist. And so I think it encourages 
us to see patterns at work in our own lives, in our own behavior, our own motivations, our own choices, um, to see the mystery of God's purpose at work in our lives by comparing it to how God was at work in all of these character stories. It's formative literature. Um, it's meant to form our imagination so that we begin to see our lives a certain way. And man, when you read the Gospels uh, and you see the mindset of Jesus for how he approached people, how he approached his mission, it, you're watching the mindset of somebody who clearly spent mm -hmm. a long, long time meditating, memorizing, and prayerfully relating to God mm -hmm. through the narrative world of the Hebrew Bible. And... I think that's, for me, that's what's capturing about this is I want to uh, be with Jesus. I want to become more like Jesus so that my life actually looks like the ways that his did in the world. As, and that's what I think I'm after <laughs> as a disciple. And so my nerdy, one nerdy way that I do that is this literature has helped me learn how to do that in ways I never would have imagined when I started reading it as a teenager, you know, yeah. 25 years ago. So um, I ask you the question because I think that's a people might have in their mind. I, I personally, I, I, I do get nervous around people rushing to find the, when they say, well, what, how does this affect my daily life? You know, it's like, I don't know. Sometimes they, I don't know. Is that, yeah, it, it makes me nervous. I've, is that reflective of our kind of expedient culture that just wants to kind of like, just tell me what to do real quickly, you know, cause I got you know stuff going on rather than just bathing ourselves in the biblical narrative and getting inside the narrative and letting that and without saying, okay, what's the, so what, what's the, so what just the, so what is like, let's just reorient, reconfigure our, our mindset so that we start to think and breathe and eat and drink the biblical narrative. And that itself has a practical payoff because it just starts to reorient the liturgies of our heart to draw on Jamie Smith's work. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's, so. that's right. It's a, it's a slow work. Mm -hmm. Right. We were all formed over the course of many years. And this literature is meant, has always played a role in groups of people who are reading, memorizing, hearing it, and living out its value set in a community um, so that it can reform our imaginations. And, uh, and to the degree that I can hear somebody else's voice other than my own when I'm spending time in scripture to have it force me to really meditate on my motives mm -hmm. and my choices and how I treat other people and how I do or don't trust God. And that's good medicine, man. That's I just, good. I need lots of that in my life. That's good. That's <laughs> and good. Uh, scripture, <laughs> scripture in ways that I am still only learning to imagine uh, does that for me and the lives of so many of my friends in a way that's so life-giving that um, I just, it's the thing that I love to talk about. So there you go. Well, Tim, thank you so much for the in-depth Bible study. Uh, I'm not sure if <laughs> yeah, people were uh, expecting this, but uh, man, th there's just so much there. So I appreciate that. For the four people that might not know who you are or the Bible Project, can you um, point people to where they can find out more about this kind of uh, really rigorous, thoughtful Bible study. Yes. Um, so I am part of a co-founder, part co-founder of a, of a nonprofit media company making resources that help people understand the Bible. It's called The Bible Project. 
And the easiest place is to go to our website, BibleProject.com. We have an app uh, where we'll kind of help people learn how to read the Bible and all of our videos, podcasts. We have free online classes. Um, Bible Project app, BibleProject.com. Hopefully you find it valuable. Thanks there so much, go. Tim, for being on uh, Theology in the Raw. Yeah, totally, Preston. Good to talk to you. Yeah. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.